in regards to this movie, the director has said or said at the time when they when they made it that many people were going to ask him if he did it for money. And he said, why do you think I did the first one? This is 30 Years Later, the podcast. Uh, it's our second episode. We are talking about another 48 hours. That's the other thing from the first movie was it was it was time limited. It was supposed to be 48 hours. Like he only had 48 hours to do the things they were trying to do, which lends a certain urgency to the movie, right? The ticking clock is like in the title, mm-hmm. whereas you don't get that sense in the sequel at all. Like, did they even say that? Because he's out of jail permanently. It is not. He does not have 48 hours. If you watch the trailer, he does say that to him, but it was cut <laughs> from the movie. Oh, my God. But it's in the trailer. Nolte says to him, come on, Reggie, we got 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) And I honestly think that Eddie Murphy says, another 48 hours? (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. Man, I can't wait to get out of Africa. Hold on. Let's see the trailer. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. It's been seven long years. Look, I got 48 hours to bring this guy in. I'm history. You want me to go out with you for another 48 hours? Now look, Reggie, this time I promise you it's gonna be different. But Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte are back. Let me tell you something. I ain't working for you. I don't like you and I don't trust you. (laughs) Welcome back, Reg. And they're making up for lost time. You got the same car, the same clothes. That's the way I like it. I get attached to things, Reggie. Another 48 Hours, which came yeah. out this week in 1990. It stars Nick Nolte. It stars Eddie Murphy, as of course it would. Directed by Walter Hill, who directed the original. Uh, the original was Eddie Murphy's uh, first movie role. It is what catapulted him into being a superstar. He had been on SNL for a little bit. Walter Hill saw some tapes. Put him in the first movie. He blew up. Uh, The movie was a massive hit. Uh, This one, not so much. It was still number one in the box office. Apparently, uh, Eddie Murphy's last of seven movies in a row to be to open at number one in the box at the box office. Oh, this is the last one. Yes. That's very interesting that you say that. That's very interesting because I was watching it and I was like, "Is this like the end of Eddie Murphy being a star?" and well, he Not actually the end of him being a star, obviously, but the end of him being like the most important star in the world. Well, he actually made it because his movie prior to this, Harlem Nights, while opening at number one, was like a critical flop, and he directed it. And apparently, it was just a huge embarrassment. So he came up with the idea for another forty-eight hours. He has an uncredited. Uh, screenplay credit basically he's not credited but he came up with the original story and pitched it to walter hill and uh they weren't going to do it but i guess eddie murphy really pushed it and from what i understand he pushed it because he needed a very sort of easy bona fide hit and he's the one who got nolte and uh walter hill uh in on it of all the people that were the person driving force behind this movie i would not think that eddie murphy was i mean 
it's just very weird because you want to imagine that he's the big star and this movie is bad and you want to be like, oh, he must have somehow had to make this movie. Like, it's such a bad movie and it's so beneath him as a giant movie star, I would say. I mean, we were talking last week about movies looking flat. Like, this is a fucking flat looking movie. Uh, it basically has sitcom credits, I want to say, like right from the beginning, because the credits are just over the action, you know, but they're in that kind of sitcom-y font. It's just like, and guest starring Nick Nolte. I disagree with it looking flat. I mean, maybe the credits do, but I actually, one of the things that I liked about the movie was that it's from that period of time of action movies that were extremely slick and polished. And the directors had like an insane amount of money to shoot like, basic stuff every scene that takes place at night is like this wide shot where you can see all the way down the street and massive amounts of extras and the streets are slick with water just to sort of give them that shine and there's like massive lights bouncing all over the place just because they had the money and could yeah so ricky before before we even recorded right you were also talking about this like night and like these slick streets and stuff but like the main impression I have of the movie is like from we open. Okay, so forty-eight hours, right? It's a it's a cop drama, you know, a slick crook and a world-weary, violent cop like navigating the underworld together to find, you know, whatever, solve the case or whatever, right? So when you make a sequel eight years later, of course you're going to start it in the desert with cowboys on motorcycles because that just makes sense. You know, like it was just, it was so bizarre to me to see that. It was like not at all what I expected. And so much of the movie takes place in the desert with cowboys on motorcycles that that's like all I can think about. I know other things happened in the movie, but emotionally I never left the desert. Almost every scene of this movie is a scene from the first movie, but this instead. Right? Like, it's like extremely close to the original scene, but with a minor tweak. The original movie opens not in the desert, but with a chain gang out in the country, and a Native American man comes driving in on a pickup truck and he stages uh, an escape. But it's very dusty, it's very Dust Bowl Americana, Mm -hmm. whereas this is the desert, and it's shot almost identically. To like or like a short version of Once Upon a Time in the West, with just like oh, yeah. lingering close-ups and a and a yeah, and, a, yeah, and yeah. an outlaw gang coming in, and like and like big gun fights, and they all have huge cowboy guns, all the evil uh, motorcycle cowboys. But I think there was something in the zeitgeist at the time about cowboys, so I can definitely see them making that shift to cowboys. I I thought of the things I remembered from being a child that were cowboy or cowboy adjacent. And as many of them as I could figure out were also from 1990. So you had um, Young Guns 2 came out in 1990, which had the, of course, famous for the Bon Jovi song, Blaze of Glory. Um, They wanted to use, okay, wait, hold on. They wanted to use. I just want to remind you that Young Guns 2 came out in August. We're in June right now of 1990. So we we will be, we will be hitting Young Guns 2. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, maybe I should save all my keep all my powder dry on young guns too. <laughs> and the other big cowboy adjacent thing I remember is uh Zorro the TV show. I don't know if you ever watched Zorro the TV show. It was on the Family Channel. Mm. No. Um also from 1990. Also from 1990. So for whatever reason, this is where culture was at. And also I think this is kind of how Axel Rose dressed. It's kind of because they're like Axel Rose cowboys. They're like LA dirtbags who are cowboys. Mm-hmm. Like like, you know, Slash wears a leather vest, but he's like on a stage, but they wear a leather vest. 
in a ghost town. You know what I mean? But it's like the same energy. Well, if you, Walter Hill, uh, who's a director that I like, you know, he did 40, he did 48 hours. He did the warriors. Um, he did, uh, harsh, hard times, harsh times, hard times. I, I believe it's called with Charles Bronson, where Bronson is in the depression and he's just traveling city to city with James Colburn doing, do, uh, fighting people illegally and making money. Great movie. Um, and he did the driver with Ryan O'Neill, which was a big influence on, on drive. Uh, he's a great director. Uh, but he has said that all of his movies are Westerns and rewatching 48 hours and, and watching this, it's very clear in these, like they take place in the city, but so many of the setups feel like they're entering a town or an area in a town and someone's locked up in like a, a room somewhere. And these guys are just got to shoot it out until they get to the bad guy in the room well you're talking about scenes that are in the both movies like now they're it's the same scene again but different both of them have the scene where it's like eddie murphy takes nick nolte into some club and he's like okay follow my lead you Mm -hmm. know and then it ends up in a huge bar fight uh or a gunfight which is plays out like a western thing in the world right it's like it's it's like they might as well somebody might like stop playing the piano and look at them walk in you know what i mean like and then it's just (laughs) It's this is like a fucking Western. It is true. Although, I mean, you can also get carried away with that. It is also very much like, I don't know, a weird 80s movie where a bunch of it takes place in nightclubs. You know, one of the th- scenes, and I feel like we're just, it's okay for us to kind of just jump around yeah, that's, on I'm this one because the, the plot on this movie doesn't really make that much sense. They have to bust Eddie Murphy out. or he Eddie Murphy's getting out of prison. Nick Nolte's been holding onto a bunch of money from him for him since the since the first movie and he won't give the money back unless Murphy helps him find this uh, new guy called the Iceman who's a killer and then between that opening scene and the last scene of the movie it's really convoluted and all <laughs> over the map and the movie barely knows how to explain itself and then all of a sudden the villain who is revealed in the last scene of the movie the Iceman is one of Nick Nolte's partners at the at the police station Except he has such a small part in the movie that by the time he's revealed to be the killer, you're like, oh, who's that? Oh, he is? <laughs> Wait, was he even, was he in this movie? Like, if you had blinked, you wouldn't have seen him in the movie. Yet he's revealed at the end to be the killer. And it's like supposed to be a big like, oh, what a betrayal. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. oh, was that the guy? Did they have coffee together? I forget. Like, what? <laughs> did he drive him somewhere? <laughs> Did he did he like walk by and hand a file put a file on Nick Nolte's desk while he was sitting there? You're like, oh right, he would have known everything because of that time they said hello. I don't <laughs> got those mug shots for you. Then he walked away, and I was like, that's the guy, that's the killer. You can just tell. You can do. It's yeah. a real Kaiser Soze kind of thing. You know, the guy who actually uh, Brian James, I believe his name is, uh, who plays that character. He was in the first one in a small part, and he was told that he was going to be a, ma- a massive part of this movie. Do you want to hear do you want to hear what Brian James who played the Iceman uh had to say about what happened to his role? I would love to hear it. He said Total Recall came out a week before another 48 hours. That summer it made 25 million, became the number one movie in the country and the studio panicked because they had invested a lot in the 48 hours films, but they felt that at well over 2 hours that the movie might be too much. My stuff was in there until one week before the film opened. That is when they cut 25 minutes out of the movie, a week before it opened. It went from around 140 to down to around 95 minutes. They said, cut all the behavior, the action, the comedy. 
I lost every major scene I had. That's the last time I ever cared about a movie because I went to the press screening and it was like getting kicked in the stomach. Seeing what is not there. I was the third lead and now I look like a dressed extra. All the stuff that they had in the setup, stuff in the trailer, all those scenes were gone. That's fucking terrible, Ricky. That's the most fucking terrible thing I can possibly imagine. The press screening? Oh my yeah, God. You, oh my God. Never, this was his, I believe, the seventh movie he made with Walter Hill in the last. Oh my God. Well, you. I guess he didn't forgive him for doing it, right? Like, Rightfully. I mean, that's terrible. Oh my God. And you would be, you would have been telling all your friends and family about how you were in this great movie or this great part in the movie. And like, you're so excited for them to watch it. And you're talking up all the cool scenes you did with Eddie Murphy. And like, you would just feel like a fucking fool. You would feel like a fool for saying it. And you would feel like a fool for believing it. You know, you'd be like, oh, of course that was what was going to happen. Oh, I'm so fucking dumb. Because you're about to be the villain in what is essentially going to be one of the biggest movies of the summer. It's the biggest, be, the most like anticipated the sequel. Yeah. yeah. You're like the villain in this huge action movie that is like the big movie for the summer. And then it's, you're just like, you're like, it's me, the bad guy. And the audience is like, eh, okay, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Should also be said that the idea for this movie came up in like August of 89. And they started, oh God. they started shooting in January of 1990, maybe even later than that, finished shooting and had it released by the second week of June, which is totally unprecedented. And Walter Hill said that, uh, Walter Hill said if he had known that it would have had a detrimental effect on the movie, he wouldn't have done it. But he was saying that <laughs> but he was saying that prior to its release, like trying to say that it didn't have a detrimental effect, but afterwards it's a pretty clear statement <laughs> what he was trying to say. <laughs> Also, like, Walter Hill had no idea it was going to have a detrimental effect on the movie <laughs> to have it go from, like, idea to release in six months. Like, it's pretty obviously going to have a detrimental effect on the movie. But they were writing it while they were shooting it. Always a great sign. Always a great sign. But going back to that bar scene, uh, what I liked about that bar scene uh, a bit within it, one of the few bits of the movie that I liked is that when a guy is about to start a fight with Nick Nolte and he's waiting for Nolte to fight him, Nolte does this little speech about how it's such a cliche to fight in a bar and to be the yeah. kind of guy that starts a bar fight. And then there's a brief pause and he starts a bar fight. And he <laughs> sucker punches him right in the chin. Ah, that dumb piece of shit. I thought that, to me, that was clever enough. <laughs> I thought it was, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. Cause at yeah. first you do kind of think, cause it's like such an, it's so much one of those sequels that is playing off the first movie that you're like, Oh, maybe they're going to like flip it and he's not going to get in a fight this time. Uh, but then he does, he does get in a fight. It does happen. Sucker punches the guy. Yeah. It's great. It's pretty funny. Um, I also loved the band that was playing in that scene and all those weird, like wide angle fish angle lenses, like, lensing of the 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 singer it would like pan very quickly from his feet to his face in an extreme close-up yeah why yeah, it was like a fisheye lens like directly in an extreme close-up on him yeah i don't know they were a very weird band they didn't seem to like be on the same wavelength at all like how would you describe <laughs> the way the lead singer of the band was dressed <laughs> well in the first movie which is 1982 it's very much a bar like blues band in a bar kind of thing you know they have that song that's in the trailer that's like the boys are back in town but in it you know 
And in this one, it's a little more. Wait, how, wait, how does the rest of the song go? Banana, nana, banana, nana. That's a completely different song, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was the heat is on. I think you were doing the heat is on. <laughs> Eddie Murphy, man, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> uh, then this one, it's a bit more. Seems like a bit more Prince influenced. Yes, I would agree. Yes, the guy kind of has a Prince vibe, except he's wearing for some. He's wearing. He has very long hair. He's wearing some kind of a like a blouse and then some kind of a like woman's jacket. And he's got very ripped acid wash jeans, but they're also they are very loose, just a really weird choice. It's very unprints. And it is the reason why this guy is like, you know, has a cameo in another 48 hours and wasn't Prince. You know, he was like <laughs> he was on the road, but he didn't quite make it. You know, they were like, can we get Prince? No. Who can we get? This guy? Okay. <laughs> I saw this guy in a bar last night. I'm like, okay, he's good enough, I guess. He you looks know? kind of like Prince. I don't know. And like sometimes he was singing really high and sometimes he was singing in like a completely different voice, which I guess is the thing Prince does also. So he's like, you know, he's always oh, he's so close, you know? Not quite, not quite. One thing I didn't really get about the movie, uh, many things I didn't get about the movie, but one thing I didn't get about the movie is that at the end of the first movie, they're friends. They've developed a begrudging respect for each other. But in this movie, immediately, it's clear that Nick Nolte returned to being a piece of shit to Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's like, why didn't you visit me in prison? Now you're going to withhold my money so I work for you? Like, what a piece of shit Nick Nolte is in this movie. And that's never really addressed in the way that like his racism is addressed in the first one. Like In the first one, right. he becomes not a racist. In this one... He just forces Eddie Murphy to work for him again and then is nice to him. Well, I think it's just they just want to replicate the same exact like character progression and they just do it. You know, like they don't want you to ask any questions about why it's happening. It's just like, hey, this is what the first movie was like. Do you like this? Like we're doing the same thing again. Except with like the racism. Right, right. Which I think is, you know, good. I'm going to say that's good. <laughs> Do you think that's because of a, a a change in the in the change in the times, or do you think that's because they thought that that would be repeating themselves too much? I think it's a change in the I think it's a change in the times. I think from the early eighties to nineteen ninety, it America was not doing great by any means, but like significantly less racist. It was a lot. I mean, I guess I, I feel like I don't really, I can't really say things like this, but like, I mean, if you watch an early episode of Law and Order, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like wildly racist, which I know is only from like 1989, but it didn't, it became not okay to do that kind of stuff in movies and TV, you know, even if it was for some kind of a point, it's just like, it's just don't really do it as much. It's, it's not okay. Right. It's too jarring. Too jarring, yeah. And it makes you hate the character. You wouldn't be like of coming around to their side. You would you'd have like, to be oh. a per you'd have to be a person like me who's looking forward who wants to watch a movie where a character is not necessarily racist, but is hateable. And that is what makes them interesting. I guess so. Something someone you can identify with. Like a real disgusting <laughs> piece of shit that has a lot of problems. And you're like, God, I hate this person. Hey, look, represent representation's important. Representation matters. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, well, let's talk about. So Eddie Murphy leaves jail and he's on a bus, and the bad guys Good scene. chase the bus. Bad guys chase the bus. They shoot the tires, and of course, what happens? The bus flips over one hundred times, and then a semi truck runs into the bus. Awesome. 
just previous to this, we know that Eddie Murphy was standing next to the driver talking to the driver. Okay. Then uh, after all of this happens, we cut to the interior of the bus. Eddie Murphy has a little bit of glass on his shoulder, but otherwise not a fucking mark on him, (laughs) not a fucking scratch on his body. And he just goes like, wow, that was crazy. You know? And he brings it up again later. Like, Oh, I've been, my bus flipped over and you know, I've been shot at. And I was like, I don't know. It was just seemed it was it was wild to me to watch the degree to which he was unharmed by this, the things that happened to him. You know, did you like the stunt at the beginning of the movie where uh, right at the beginning of the movie where Nolte is chasing that guy around the dirt bike track and literally Nick Nolte is dodging dirt bikes as they speed past him? It's really just one or two shots of him doing it. But I thought that was kind of cool that Nolte got in between these dirt bikes, no matter how close to him they actually were. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. No, I think I was like making notes during that. I was a little distracted during that. Just during this part of the movie, I was not paying very close attention, to be 100% honest (laughs) with you. When there was the giant explosion that was like very important to the plot, I was like, wait, how did that happen exactly? Well, I guess I could rewind the movie, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Wait, which giant explosion? Like where the where he killed the guy at the very beginning of the movie. Oh yeah, in the dirt bike. Yeah, he shoots the guy at the dirt bike track. Yeah, exactly. and that brings yeah. out the whole internal affairs character who's like taking his badge away, which has just no reason to be there. I just don't know why they're making internal affairs the bad guys of the movie. I guess it's because it's like they want you to not abuse people. <laughs> like what pieces of shit, you know? And they really set this guy up to be the villain, but he does not turn out to be the villain in the end. But it was it was like it reminded me of the EPA being the bad guys in Ghostbusters. It was just this kind of weird, like nasty anti-government stuff from a Hollywood movie where you're like, why? Why is this in here? I don't get this at all. That is that is something that is in I mean, at least in the 80s, at least in the 80s, that is something that I feel like is in a lot of movies. It's this idea that the little guy versus the big guy and the big guy is always the government and he's hand tying people who are actually trying to uh get things done yeah boy turned out that wasn't the case huh (laughs) turned out that was like turns out that the government was actually really helping a lot and it just sucks (laughs) that they don't do it as much so many people fly away when getting shot in this movie right they fly through glass they fly into the bar like i've never seen a movie where so many people get shot and fly away yes i have a note but like there's a someone who gets shot in the movie and uh it's not until the like sixth shot that they, but then they fly away so far. <laughs> They've already been shot like five times, but that sixth shot, that was just one too many, man. And then they go like all the way across their room. So when, so when it comes to the bad guys, there's the unidentified one. There's the ice man, right? Ice man. Right. Uh, who we don't meet until the end. Uh, and then there is the actual brothers. Right. R- yeah, there's the two motorcycle brothers who are the hitmen, and then there's the there's the black guy that works for the Iceman, right? Oh, right, sure, sure, sure. And then there's but then there's another guy who's like the dispatcher for the motorcycle brothers. Isn't that the isn't isn't that the African American guy with the with the trench coat with the brown no, trench the coat white, and the glasses? The white guy, the white guy who's got the like uh, crazy hair, and they go crazy at the at the end of the movie. The the reason the motorcycle brothers turn against the Iceman is because that guy gets killed. That's right. Okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So there's that guy. Yeah. But anyway, the two motorcycle brothers. One of them has a hilarious teardrop tattoo 
on his eye. That it's is very large. It's very, very large. I mean, it is if someone had heard of the concept that people get teardrop tattoos, described <laughs> it to a makeup artist. Oh, you should have some kind of teardrop on his face. And the guy was, and the makeup artist was like, okay. And they just put a teardrop on his face and they were like, all right. Yeah. All right. Let's just roll with this. This seems fine. It's it 1990. Looks, no one knows. It looks like someone drew an, drew, drew an emoji on his face. <laughs> so big. It's so big um, that it's, yeah, it was very distracting, but the guy also looks like he just looks like a music video model. Like he's got this like hair to perfectly to his chin. He's got, uh, he's extremely beautiful looking. He's wearing like leather jackets with no shirts. And he always looks, he's always like pulling up on a motorcycle and like making a face at the camera. So I feel like his job mostly was just like to look super pretty. And he, I would say mission accomplished. Yeah. He you're right. He looks like a rock star. Yeah, I mean, this is what I was saying before about how they look like L.A. scene dirtbags. They just look like guys <laughs> from the Viper Room. And they were like, okay, you these are a couple of real cool guys from the Viper Room. They're going to be the assassins in our new Another 48 Hours. <laughs> um, and they're, they're in the clubs, and they're like, yeah, we're the bad guys in Another 48 Hours. They're making a sequel to 48 Hours. We're in it. 48 Hours, the movie from like eight years ago? Yeah, yeah, they're making a sequel. We're the bad guys. Okay, all right, <laughs> sure, whatever. <laughs> You're going to draw a big teardrop on my eye. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm so glad you could. I'm so glad to meet you. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a scene with the two of them in the hospital where uh, Nolte's, you know, they're pulling the vest off Nolte and they're, they're making sure that Eddie Murphy's okay. And then there's this walk and talk between Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. And it's this moment where you're like, Oh, come on. This could be the moment where their charm and what's so charismatic about the two of them together could play out. Write a couple jokes. And there's no jokes. There's nothing said no, there's that's nothing. funny. There's nothing said that's interesting. They basically rehash the last 20 minutes of the of the movie. It's simply like the writers were told we need a scene here. And the writers just wrote what just happened rather than actually moving <laughs> yeah. anything like forward moving or giving them forward, anything fun yeah. to say. Just letting them like fuck around a little bit or something. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think they have any chemistry. I think Eddie Murphy is like occasionally has a little bit of energy, but kind of also a lot of times he it's like, he's trying to act a little bit more like be an action hero or something instead of be funny. So a, a lot of the time he's just kind of like wooden, you know, he's just kind of looking and I didn't find him all that charming in this film at all. Even just to hear him sing Roxanne in the beginning, which is the, the famous, famous thing from the first movie. It was just sad because it sounded bad. It didn't sound as good as it sounded in the first 48 hours. It was kind of like, oh, you should just avoid doing this if you can't do it as well anymore. Uh, do you want to hear what Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert had to say? Ricky, of course, of course. I don't want to just seem like I'm always giving the same review of Eddie Murphy because my job is not to be a career doctor. But here is a man who is, by his very nature, destined to be and is a superstar. And there is nothing that he could not have if he exercises quality control. He is not being handled well uh, in terms of his films. Or handling himself well. He is making one bad, sloppy, ill-written, ill-conceived, ill-thought-out movie after another, as if his magic is going to carry it through and it ain't going to happen. I mean that's a pretty that's a pretty strong diss on Eddie Murphy. One one ill-written sloppy movie after another. Yeah, so I'm going to read you the movies he made for the next like 
six years after this movie that we just oh, saw. Oh, wait, can, okay? can I can I guess some? Can I guess them before you start reading? In order? Uh, yeah, I'm going to try in order. Okay, go for it. Boomerang. Yes. Vampire in Brooklyn. No, you skipped all the way to the end. Oh, fucking hell. Okay, go ahead. The Distinguished Gentleman. Do you remember that one? I think that's where he runs. Is that where he runs for Congress, I think? I have no idea. Oh, my God. I don't know. And then, actually, then 1995 is Vampire in Brooklyn. And then there's uh, one. You want to do, like, one more after that? Yeah, what's one? What's the next one? The Nutty Professor. Nutty Professor. Well, that's a different era, right? Because that's when he becomes successful again. And then Dr. Doolittle. Well, he's in Mulan. He's in Mulan as the voice in between. That's successful. Makes this movie Metro that is terrible, I think. That's him and De Niro, right? Yeah. Oh, hold on. Let me see. No. He made a movie with De Niro where he plays... They play cops. It's a, or like he's a movie star that wants oh. to be a cop. I don't know some shit. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I want my a character. Hostage negotiator teams up with a sharpshooter to bring down a dangerous jewel thief. That's Metro. Is that with De Niro? I don't know. It says the top build cast is like I don't see him in here. Michael Rappaport maybe is is he the, the starring opposite him? I would love it's to hear him. Michael it's Rappaport spill the tea on Eddie Murphy. <laughs> He's got nothing to lose, Rappaport. He'll say it. he'll say whatever. He doesn't give a fuck. He just tells it like it is that Michael Rappaport. Um, all of his like Twitter videos with the camera underneath his big chin while he screams about President Trump. This fucking guy, full, full on, full on dad mode with the camera like up his nose. This is what I'm saying. Like the fact that old people have video cameras that they can use without, like, without tapes they have to worry about. It's like the worst <laughs> thing that's ever happened to society. Yep. They can just fucking yell into a video camera forever and not have to be like, "Oh, I gotta get a new tape." <laughs> you know, like the scene, the scene in, in the in the hospital corridor. I think is such a perfect example of everything wrong uh, with this as a sequel. In the sense, it just does not feel like anybody cared to put a little extra effort into it. Yeah. I mean, I don't even remember. Oh, you mean the one we were just talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's just nothing going on there. And it, there's no reason for it to be happening. There's nothing interesting about it. It's just kind of like, this is a part of the movie, you know? It's like, why though? Why is this in here? This isn't, it's, it's the movie just seems like such a transparent, you know, cash grab. I mean, uh, it, it is just so weird the way Eddie Murphy was handling his career, exactly what they're talking about. Like, he only made terrible movies for like a decade. And I, I don't understand what was going on with him. Like, did he have some kind of problem? Did he have like gambling debts or like something going on in his personal life where he had to get as much money as possible in a short amount of time? Like, it just seems like it's like inexplicable, you know? You know, the thing is, is that like, you can never account for what becomes successful that you do. Not that I am famous or have any idea well, no, what's true. in the you're mind right, of a though. famous person. But like, imagine you're Eddie Murphy and you make a movie one of your first, maybe he didn't like 48 hours you know what if he saw 48 yeah. hours and was like this is going to be fucking embarrassing for me and then it comes out and it's a huge hit you don't so then at that point you don't know anything and then yeah. you make a movie that you love say and you've put all your effort into and nobody likes it and the critics hate it so at that point yeah. it's like you're a superstar show up do the job collect the check yeah. walk away stop stop caring I mean, it, it is really true, and I do know how much of I, I know how much of his life he put into that um, 
that flop movie. What was it called? Harlem? Harlem Nights. Harlem Nights, yeah. I mean, I remember that being such a huge deal as a child. They were always showing like behind the scenes things on MTV and VH1 about fucking Harlem Nights. It was very odd. They leave the hospital and they go to pick up Eddie Murphy's car, which has been left on the street oh, right. for the all the years that Eddie Murphy's been in prison. Uh, and they go to get it because that's where Nolte left the thousands and thousands of dollars that uh, right. he had been holding on to for Murphy. As they get to it, yes as they get to the car it blows up no no and then honestly at this point it's where the movie kind of goes completely off the rails and off the rails can usually mean something good in the sense that it's like this movie gets wild and crazy and it's like this movie just kind of falls apart like scenes just start happening with no reason to happen nor any kind of bearing on the plot it feels like and it's just sort of meandering or like stumbling towards an ending where eventually the ending just tells you what has happened because you couldn't really tell what was happening up until that point i mean it just becomes for me a series of you know it's just a series of action set pieces that are like kind of related to each other but not really and like you're saying kind of trying to understand exactly why from a character standpoint all these things are happening doesn't make any sense the way to understand it is like emotionally as like i want to see this cool thing happen and i want to see this other cool thing happen and this is the movie that's going to deliver all these cool things to you do you know what i mean like there's just a bunch of gunfights and fist fights and car chases and you know there's the the it's like a, the fast and the furious movie like who knows why any of these things are happening you know it's just this is we are you get to watch this spectacle you know i don't know can you honestly say though that those fast movies are better than this movie yeah, I mean, I feel like since the beginning of talking about this movie, I, I have seen that I'm on thin ice because I can tell you really like this movie. <laughs> no, I like, don't really like this movie, I, this movie Honestly, I thought this movie was a slog. I really didn't like it at all. I was like, could not believe how bad it was. I just um, said that it was a slog. I said, basically, after the car blows up, the movie is a slog till the point that it ends. All right, all right fine. But, but I, I feel like that... there's something, you seem to be like uh, electric, like you're fascinated by what's happened in this film. I just found it like deadening. I found it just like, <laughs> oh my God. If, I mean, it felt like an episode of a 90s TV show that I was watching for some reason. It was like I was watching like Scarecrow and Mrs. Miller, but like with a huge budget, you know? you're asking me about did anything happen that i remember between this and the end of the movie i think i literally have four notes would you like to hear them yeah they are um number one this movie has very loud guns yes every time there was a gunshot in this movie it was like i don't know i don't know decibels ricky a thousand decibels louder than anything else that had been happening in the movie to that point and there'll be like 10 gunshots in one scene at least and it's i was constantly having to turn the volume down because Catherine was asleep on my lap and i was like this, this is, is fucking insane this is very much a movie of five people shooting at each other in a small room and no one getting hit. Oh, well, this is something I wanted to bring up earlier. The scene where we watch Nick Nolte get absolutely fucking murdered and fly backwards over the bar. The next time we see him, much like Eddie Murphy being fine after the car accident, he's just like, ah, good thing I wear that bulletproof vest. <laughs> and you're like, he didn't at all look like he was wearing a bulletproof vest. Like, no. He just looked like he was wearing a shirt and a jacket. And even if you're wearing a bulletproof vest, if you got shot with like a 44 Magnum at that range, I don't think you would just be like walking away from it. And like also all your ribs would be broken, you know, like you'd be fucked up. If it flew you five feet, <laughs> like through a bunch of glass, you know, <laughs> yeah, you probably would be kind of fucked up, dude. You would. 
Um, so that was fucking nuts. Um, this is another one. I don't know what possessed me to write this down, but I wrote, uh, bad guy falls onto trucks full of bottles of water. Pretty cool slash unique. <laughs> yes, you are correct. And I will tell you that was, with the exception of the dirt bikes in the beginning, that was my favorite part of the movie. When that <laughs> happened, when when that happened, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a cool yeah, idea. It, it was cool. It was cool to see because he really did fall into bottles of water. They like broke and the like water was coming out of them or whatever. I mean. Yeah, he falls into a flatbed truck filled with, uh, we should say like, not like industrial bottles of water, like bottles right. of water that you would have in a water like, machine. Like water cooler bottles. Water, water. cooler bottles. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was neat. It was well done. I mean, it reminded me of a time when people still did practical stunt work other than like a movie star jumping across a roof, like people falling onto things like that used to be such a huge part of cinema. How much glass do you think they broke for this movie? Oh my God. It's like John Wick 3. I mean, all the glass was broken. Anytime they saw a glass, someone was thrown into it like over and over and over again. Every room was covered in mirrors in the walls and they were all smashed by the end of the scene. Do you think there was a moment where like the prop guy went up to Walter Hill and was like, Hey Walter, we, um, we thrown anybody through glass in this scene. And Walter Hill was like, do you know who the fuck you're talking to? Of course we're throwing people through glass in this scene. (laughs) This is another 48 hours. It's what we're about. It's what people pay to see. (laughs) It's my motif. Uh, you know, there's a saying in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. It's if you see a glass coffee table, someone is getting thrown into the glass coffee table. Mm. Like, without fail. They don't often show them in the show, and when they do, it's because someone's getting thrown into it. Ricky, I love how fucking speechless it makes you for me to bring up Star Trek. Like, it's so foreign to your experience. Like, you're such a fucking Chad that even for me to say the words, even just to say the word Star Trek to you, it's like you go into some kind of fugue state. You start thinking about a cheerleader's underwear. Like, it's like you're just, dis- you leave your fucking body when I start talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, weird. Cool. It's weird because I actually am interested and I like that you bring up Star Trek and <laughs> you what happens is that like it's the same thing that happens to me whenever someone smart brings up Star Trek, which is the experience of hearing someone smart talk about Star Trek is so much more interesting to me than any time I've tried to watch the show that like <laughs> I immediately start thinking about I immediately start thinking like knee-jerk reaction of like, why don't you watch Star Trek? What you should be watching Star Trek. This sounds so good. This sounds so smart. And then by the time you finish talking, I've processed what you've said and also processed the idea that I don't want to watch Star Trek. So I'm thinking about multiple things. So you're on like an emotional roller coaster. I'm on Is a bit of a, I'm on a bit of emotion, an emotional roller coaster when you bring up Star well, Trek. Okay. I, you're right. I, I should have more sympathy for you and I apologize. I am not a Chad. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to say about the plot progression of another 48 hours? I mean, I, we, it all wraps up. The bad guy dies. Eddie Murphy gets his money. Uh, Nick Nolte. I don't know what happens to Nick Nolte. He is, he does something happen to him? Does he have an arc? <laughs> he gets his job back, I guess. Is, is that what yeah. happens? To oh him? yeah. Like out of nowhere, the internal affair guys shows up and it's like, you're all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's do what is the most 90s thing about this movie since all of the movies we would be talking about for the next 10 years will have been <laughs> to have taken place in the 90s or been made in the 90s. 
Uh, so if I, you want me to start, I would say the, the most 90s thing, not to keep going back to this nightclub sequence, you, I was actually surprised to hear you call it cool that they kept showing the band. We were talking about the band. I think one of the most 90s things about this movie is that it, it's under the impression the audience wants to see a live music performance in the middle of the movie. I feel like this is very <laughs> common at a certain point in the late 80s and early 90s. Like Roadhouse, for example, has a lot of live music in it. It just used to, the directors just thought, Yo, you want to see a cool band like that? would be a cool thing to put in the movie. And it, no one gives a shit. No one gives a single shit. You know, I mean, at least not now. Maybe they did at the time. I don't know. Everyone did it. But that certainly would not be in the 2020 version of this fucking movie. I agree. But you know what? That's what I liked. That's why I liked it. I like when I see when movies are live up to the time period that they uh, that they were made. You want to hear some rock and roll in the middle of your action movie? <laughs> For so know. long. It's so weird that the, the, the studio cut all of this stuff out, but left that <laughs> in. They, left, they have like two full songs in the movie. They're like, well, the audience has got to see two songs from this band they've never heard of. F- <laughs> Fuck Brian James. We don't need to put him in the movie. Put this killer band in. They rock. And when the, as soon as we cut away from the band, the energy leaves the movie. We need more band. <laughs> but guys, the band is not germane to the plot. But it's great. They sound great. You, you hear the music and you just start moving. You just feel it. You know, that's what the movie needs. <laughs> Do you know how much people like music? <laughs> people, they're crazy for the shit. <laughs> uh, I think the most '90s thing. For me, is that um, is just Nick Nolte. <laughs> like I realized that he was popular from the seventies. I mean, from the seventies through the eighties. But really, the nineties was when I knew who oh, Nick yeah. Nolte was. Yeah, definitely the Blue Chips trailer playing constantly <sighs> in the background of your life. Blue Chips, I love Blue Chips. I love Trouble with uh, Julia Roberts. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Affliction, which was like ninety seven or ninety eight, I believe. Uh, or night movie, you, maybe even ninety nine. Speaking of this, speaking of nineteen nineties, Nick Nolte. I mean, and he's different. He's different from movie to movie. Prince of Tides. Like, Prince of Tides. What is the appeal of him supposed to be in this movie? Like, what is his movie star persona supposed supposed to be? Like, he's a huge piece of shit who's like really sad alcoholic. Is that that's what I'm getting from him? Like, because he's not attractive. He's not being funny. He's not necessarily doing like super. Is he like a super cool gruff action man? Like, what what is his re? What am I supposed to be feeling as the audience? Well, that's what I was saying before. They removed all of these sort of like hard edged aspects of him that were from the first movie, right? That he's a racist, that he's an alcoholic, that he's kind of a loose cannon at work, that he has relationship problems. There were all these peripheral things about him in the first movie that made his growth, his slight growth in the movie. Uh, appealing whereas in this there's nothing he's just kind of he's just kind of mean for no reason he's just kind of like another scene with me (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) i've got to go get something all right i guess we'll see if you can get it uh you know since this movie came out 30 years ago it's now 30 years old what do you think uh it's grown out of what has it grown out of well, I do think I know you were saying and I and I obviously you're correct that it was a big expensive movie for the studio, but I just feel like it has this look like you're never going to see a movie that looks like this today. Yes. Yeah, I there's no it's just this very particular way a movie would look in 1990 and it just you would never ever in a million years put out a movie that looks like this now. 
Um, and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. I, you know, I would think a lot of it is bad. A lot of there's, I personally don't think this movie looks that great, but like, it just, it looks like 1990. It's impossible to describe, you know? I agree with you, but I also feel like one of the things that I like about a movie that looks like this is that any movie similarly made now or a similar subject, be it Stuber or a big action comedy, you just feel like there's... A lot of shade towards Stuber's ambitions right there. (laughs) (laughs) You just feel like there's several cameras thrown around a a set and then they cut it all together later, right? There's no no sense of like, hey, these guys are going to pull into this scene. This is where the master should be. And this is how we're going to shoot the close-ups and cut it all together. It's a very like storyboarded movie. You're totally right. Like, yeah. Everything is like, the, you know, the motorcycle comes across the desert up to the lonely, uh, you know, bar. And it just, they all do look like drawings in a certain way. You know, I like that. I like watching movies that feel like that. It feels like craft. Yeah. And I don't like watching movies where it just feels like they're just shooting as much as they can to capture whatever they can and then cut it later. I just feel like it wasn't necessarily like executed in a way that I I thought was great. You know, I, I do like the ambition of it and the structuring a movie in that way, but I just thought so many of the it just didn't look great. I just thought it it, it just had an early '90s look to me, like a TV look almost. Which I know it was, you know, a TV show from the time would have looked much worse. Like I, to me to remember it that way is wrong, but like I don't know, I do. You know, <laughs> yeah, too. I would. I was going to say that I think it's grown out of the kind of sequel that it is in the sense that it's just a rehash of everything from the first movie with a slight twist. But as I was thinking that I remembered that I had to sit through Zombieland two last year, (laughs) which Zombieland two is really the another 48 hours of sequels for this, for this era. I mean, it is solely just every scene from Zombieland one with a uninspired, tired cast and and slight slight variation um so it hasn't really say, hasn't grown out of that yeah that, yeah that, i mean i even those now you see me movies are kind i mean they're having fun i guess but it's also kind of just like this is the this is another one of these magic movies like here's some <laughs> more big magic tricks um it, it's another speaking of its sequelness another thing you don't see anymore is that in 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 this day and age if you're going to make a movie related to another movie 8 years later it wouldn't just be a direct sequel. It wouldn't just be like picking up where you left off with the last adventure. You know, it would be like a reboot or like the next generation, or there would be some kind of like reason that things had so much time had gone by. Whereas in this movie, they're just like, ah, sorry, I didn't see you for the last eight years. Let's get talking. You know, you are neglecting zombie land too, though. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) That is all that zombie land two is. God, that's fucking insane. That's um, fucking insane. You know that there was a uh, a reboot of, or like another telling of 48 Hours in development uh, with Paramount that was going to be, that was written, a script was written by the Safties or by Ronald Bronstein who writes with the Safties and I believe um, Jared Carmichael. Um, and no. I think Carmichael was going to be in it. I don't know if that ever happened, but then the Safties passed on doing it. It's crazy how big Roxanne like him singing Roxanne in the prison was from the first movie and was a huge a huge part of 
culture for the whole for the whole decade of the 1980s. Eddie Murphy listening to a Walkman singing Roxanne. I mean, it was such a big deal that Eddie Murphy talks about his Walkman in this movie several times. Like, where's my Walkman? Where are my tapes? Oh, my Walkman broke. It's like, you just expect that. It's like hearing, you know, King Arthur talk about his sword. Like, his Walkman, of course, that's his thing. He needs that. Marty McFly and his DeLorean, you know? I have to ask, you know, I watched the original movie, which I really like. I rewatched it recently. Is it funny when he's listening to Roxanne in the prison? Because I, I do not, I, I do not laugh. I see it as like a charming characteristic of the character that, like you know, tells us a little bit about who he is. But I do not hysterically laugh or even think about repeating it afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, Ricky. And uh, here's the thing. Like you have to transport yourself back to 1982. Okay. It's a very strong monoculture. Okay, we've got three networks still, basically. Cable maybe exists. A few big movies, okay, and the same songs playing on the radio everywhere all the time. Roxanne at this point, huge. The biggest song in the world. You hear it everywhere you go. All around the clock, it's all you hear, okay? Big deal. Sting is super famous. He's so famous. He's on Saturday Night Live, right? He's he, he's like such a big deal. Everyone has to take Sting so seriously. And then here comes this Joker, Eddie Murphy, Okay. And he's singing Roxanne, but he's not doing a very good job. He doesn't sound good. He sounds bad. He sounds like you or me might sing, sound, trying to sing Roxanne. And you just think like, oh man, finally somebody's saying it. You know, that Roxanne song, it's so high. Like, he sounds so crazy trying to sing Roxanne. And that's, that, I think. Is that that's, it? I think, yes, that is it. That is what's going on. <laughs> if you ask me, <laughs> that's what's going on. Yeah. And people held on to that for 10 years? It's like seeing like scary movie and you're like, oh, finally they made fun of that thing from horror movies. You're like, oh yeah, that Roxanne song. Oh man, it's so high, right? I think that's it. I think that's it. It's easier to be funny and it's easier to be shocking when everybody only watches like the same two things and everybody is like very, has a very strict code of societal conduct. You know, you don't have to be that crazy to be really interesting. Uh, We should wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm done. That's all the fu- that's all I got to fucking say about another 48 hours. Not a fan. Me? No, I didn't like it. I thought it was a bad movie. I didn't it like it. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, it I didn't enjoy bad. it. I did like to people to watch people ride motorcycles on the sand, but also I was like, mm, is it really worth it? It seems really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy watching Nick Nolte, uh, no matter what. I kind of enjoy watching eddie murphy no matter what i think even when he's boring he's a superstar kind of like we talked about arnold schwarzenegger where it's like hard to take your eyes off of him i mean the same thing with nick nolte he's just like nick nolte is just a massive fucking head and bigger than everybody and has that gruff voice and is in his own way kind of a beautiful person like he was rated one of People Magazine. I think it was Sexiest Person of the Year one year. Well, this is why I was talking about what his movie star energy was supposed to be, because sometimes it is that he's sexy. Even at this date in history, sometimes he's the sexy guy in the movie. But you can see his fall from sexy starting in this movie, right? Like, if you go watch 48 Hours, you you get him being sexy. In this, it's like, he was hungover for this, in this scene. They shot this scene, and he looks bad. He looks genuinely in pain. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't look like he's doing well. Uh, um, yeah, you know, it's so great. It's so great to chat with you about this fantastic movie, Ricky. Thirty years ago, thirty years ago this week. Just think, I was a mere seven years old. You know, looking anxiously forward to my eighth birthday. You know, thinking about 
learning addition, something like that. You know, it was a big time for me. And uh, what a pleasure to travel in this time machine with you. I was six and uh, I don't remember this movie at all, but I do remember family members and my parents always doing the Roxanne. I don't, yeah, no, I don't think anyone in my family did that. I don't think that was a popular thing in my family. Yeah, that's because your family wasn't cool. End of Uh, podcast. Goodbye. (laughs) 